This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hey, we're back with another Money and Markets. I'm Laura from AJ Bell and with me is Dan from Shares. Hiya. So this week we're going to look at what a wealth tax would mean for the UK, why savers have been hit again, and we've got two fund managers talking about thematic investing. So first up, Dan, why don't you give us a little markets update for the week? So April was fantastic for the stock market. Sadly, May so far seems to be a little less exciting. Everything seems to be slipping back a bit. Uh, Apart from Chinese markets have been quite good, but for people investing in sort of UK stocks and in US stocks and European ones it's not been amazing um, and there, there's sort of quite a few reasons why uh, one is that good old Donald Trump is reigniting his tensions with China again um, sort of suggesting that China was the cause of the the pandemic and suggesting the US is going to go and seek damages over the outbreak um, You've also had lots of people thinking that earnings forecasts for companies are perhaps still a bit too optimistic. Um, So I think there's a sense of, you know, we've had this bit of a rally. Maybe we'll take some profits now um, because I think by the time we get companies reporting on the second quarter, which will truly reflect uh, the lockdown. So you should get that from probably July onwards in terms of companies telling you what's been going on. I think that will that will trouble the markets potentially again. There'll be some really ugly numbers coming out. But oil price actually picking up a bit. It's just over $30 a barrel now. Um, and that's a sense of people sort of getting a bit more hopeful about economies restarting. So overall, not, not brilliant, but, you know, in relative terms, it could have been a lot worse for that way. And particularly relative to recent history. So some positivity. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Now, there are quite a few companies have been reporting um, over the last week, particularly in the US. So we've had Disney and Amazon sort of update on um, figures. So Disney's suffered uh, a $1.4 billion hit due to the coronavirus. So if you think it's in, it is in a really tricky situation. So obviously a big chunk of its business comes from running theme parks. Um, now they're all shut. Um, quite a lot of its films have been postponed, uh, not being shown at cinema or, or they've gone straight to its new streaming service. Um, and it does own some uh, various sort of TV channels as well and it's had reduced advertising sales. So it's it's in a real difficult patch, but, uh, you know, like so many other businesses as well. Um, and on the flip side, we've had Amazon, whose sales have actually surged in the first quarter. So they're up 26% year on year. Um, but, you know, profit margins are the thing perhaps to, to consider short term here. It's spending lots of money on sort of measures to protect staff in the workplace. Um, but of course, lots of its warehouses are not going to be running as efficiently as they were because of social distancing measures. So it's got these big costs, um, which will be sort of casting a dark cloud over the business. But generally, you know, we've all been stuck at home Um I certainly know myself, I've been ordering lots of stuff, um, you know, perhaps things to keep my, my kids busy and other things. So, Laura, I bet you, have you been sort of clicking away, doing lots of online orders while you've been at home? 
I have. I think you just, it's so much easier to get it and know that it's going to come next day than try and navigate going out to some of the physical shops that are actually open or kind of waiting the long delivery times that others have. But I have been trying to branch out from Amazon and spend a bit more money with kind of local smaller businesses. But the convenience of Amazon does win quite often, doesn't it? Yeah. And I think this is, um, you know, there was lots of people sort of questioning the company in the, you know, over the last few years about you know how much tax is it paying or not paying um is it become far too dominant but you know in this sort of really troubled period that we've had this year so many people have been reliant on this business to not only to deliver them goods while they're stuck at home but also don't forget a big part of this business is these sort of um, servers helping um companies run so you know everyone's sort of accessing information for businesses by remote workers that you know, a lot of them are using Amazon's web services for this. And so, you know, it is truly has become such an essential business um, in sort of the current market. And so even though it's seen some increase in costs in terms of protecting staff and, and lower efficiency, you still think it's likely to come out of this up because of just increased use, basically? Yeah, definitely. And of course, it, the company's been telling its shareholders are saying, like, you know, don't 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 focus on this now thinking that we're just a, you know, a potential winner from this situation you know the, the business is very much about taking a long-term view and we are still incredibly ambitious and so much more stuff we want to do and um you know like many very large and many small businesses we'll find a way to navigate through the, the difficult period but really um you know we're still as excited about what we can do long term as uh, as we were before and so one thing that people are now starting to look at as we get into week seven is it six eight Twenty? Who I knows? Tra- I track of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, they're looking at the kind of sheer cost of how much the support that the government is providing to prop up the economy, how much that's going to cost, and how we're going to all pay for it. So current estimates are that it's already cost the government more than a hundred billion pounds. And so one of the suggestions of how we pay for this once the crisis is over is um, a wealth tax, which one of our listeners emailed in about. And just wanted a bit more information on how that would actually work in practice. So, Dan, wealth taxes, they've been talked about for a long time, but how, how would that actually help to repay some of this debt? Well, it's quite, I mean, there's, there's various ways that the government can potentially sort of get back some money. And I, I've sort of seen uh, a few suggestions, which I'll, I'll run through now. And first of all, it, it could be that for people who are, um, perhaps a bit more comfortable so they, they might have paid off their mortgage um, they've got sort of private pension savings you know you, you could feasibly see um, this group of people being hit perhaps with a one-off um, tax bill um, I, I have seen some suggestions if, if this they didn't have any sort of cash available to pay it they could potentially defer this until you know perhaps they sell their house or um, a government takes an equity share in lieu of payment well that that seems a bit um, I don't know not not the direction of travel which people are thinking so so really it comes down to um what are the ways that we can you know, say we that, what are the ways that the government can um tax people who are uh, a bit more well off um so i mean you, we could run through some of these um different measures now what one would be perhaps to introduce some capital gains tax charge on former main residences passed on after death. So um, there might be some exceptions there if, if you've got cohabiting spouses and civil partners um, re- and recognised long-term related carers there. But 
essentially it was you know what what can we do with with, with capital gains the next thing is be um could we equalize the tax rates on income and capital gains tax um what about sort of abolishing some of the capital gains allowance um abolishing high rate tax relief for pension contributions i mean you, know, you could keep going thinking all the different ways in which um you can just try and claw back some of this money and then i mean I don't, laura have you, have you looked at sort of the where it might be the obvious starting point for us to go so i think one of i mean scrapping the the pension tax release for higher rate earners so this is people that get um 40 or 45% tax relief on their pension contributions is something that comes around pretty much every budget that we have from the government because it's such a large cost to the government and therefore scrapping it is such a massive saving to the government purse. So it seems inevitable that that will at least be among the suggestions of how to raise some money. And considering it's been talked about quite a lot before, although there's always some debate about how... um, how solid those rumours are, but considering it's been talked about and floated as an idea before, then it seems kind of, it seems like it might be an option on the table. However, we've got to remember that we've got a Conservative government in and it's not a very Conservative policy um, to scrap that or to introduce some sort of kind of flat rate relief on that. Um, But it is a big revenue raiser. Well, because, you know, we've got this government who's come out and said, we're meant to be ending the era of austerity we're going to start spending again but it, it, it just strikes me that um you know they're now going to be going back to austerity but you know, boris johnson's been in the paper saying no that's that's not what we're going to be doing um but i think even going into the sort of the general election um towards the end of last year that the sort of the tory manifesto was talking about um various things on on uh, sort of tax and and really, it does look like if you know, if income tax, national insurance and VAT rates have to go up, that would go against everything that was within the Tory manifesto pledges. But I don't know if they've got really choice, really. You know, I guess when they were putting all those sort of um, election election stuff together, you know, no one was factoring in what could happen with a, with, you know, a horrible pandemic. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that... Um... They would have fairly solid ground to say no one could have predicted that this would have happened and we provided support at the time, but now we do need to work out a way to pay it. But capital gains tax seems like a, an, an obvious tweak as well. Um, and also lots has been talked about before and, and in the um, most recent election there was lots of talk about ways of, of taxing people who have got that massive amount of wealth in their property. So they've built up a lot of equity, they've seen a lot of house price rises and different ways of perhaps taxing that, like you say, either during their lifetime or after they die. Um, and that would be another kind of big, big amount of money that could be tapped into. Ultimately, someone's got to pay for it somehow. And it's going to be the wealthiest in society that generally have to pay for it because they're the ones that have surplus cash. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, trying to keep keep abreast of um allowances and tax rates and stuff is bad enough as it is but you know it certainly does look like we're going to be faced um with some significant changes and i and I imagine towards the end of the year the autumn statement we're going to get some sort of um first sort of glimpse at, w- at what shape that might be so um you know there'll be lots for us to talk about but it doesn't sound like it might be particularly good news for for lots of people i'm afraid so on to another subject for the podcast this week there's been 
another hit to savers, actually, when Santander has sort of come out and said it's going to be cutting interest rates on its popular one, two, three account again. So, Laura, what is going on? So we've obviously talked before about how we've had Bank of England cuts. Uh, we've had lots of cuts to savings accounts and interest rates. Um, and Santander is the latest one to do this. So it's a double whammy this time. So from this week, the interest rate on the account went down from 1.5% to 1%. So anyone with that account now is getting just 1% on their savings in that. But they also announced that in August, that rate will go down yet again to 0.6%. Um, so that makes it at that point just not competitive in the market compared to other savings accounts out there. And this account was something of a kind of poster child of the savings industry. It was kind of the darling of the savings market. And if you'll remember kind of 10 odd years ago, Santander didn't have a great reputation. It was not viewed particularly well among savers and and um, it had kind of real problems attracting and retaining customers. It launched this account and when it launched it, it paid 3% interest, which at the time was a great thing for savers. And people really flocked to the account and lots of people set them up. But gradually over the years, they've whittled away not only the interest rate that they offer on savings, but they also offer cash back on direct debits that you set up through the account. Um, and they've made kind of successive cuts to that and capped the amount that you can earn on that. Um, so once it drops down to that 0.6%, um, there is not much reason to keep it because there are better paying savings accounts out there where you can earn more interest on your savings. Um, particularly because for the account, you have to pay £5 a month for it, uh, which is worthwhile if you're going to earn more than that back in interest and in cash back on your direct debits. But now you are that's going to really eat into the amount of money that you're making each month. What... What can you get? What you know? What's at the moment? If you were to put money into a cash account, what's the best buy rate? So the best buy at the moment for an easy access account is Marcus by Goldman Sachs, which we've talked about before. So it's the relatively new bank um, retail bank offered by Goldman Sachs, um, and so the interest rate for someone new signing up today is one point two percent. Existing customers who'd opened an account a while ago. Um, We'll probably be earning more than that. But if you're going to go and open an account today, it will be 1.2%. Um, it's an online account. So it doesn't really work. If you're looking for a direct replacement for the Santander account, it doesn't really work in that way. You don't get a bank card like you do with the Santander account. It's entirely an online account. But there's no cap on the amount of money that you can put in there that earns that interest rate. So there's quite a lot of competitive accounts out there but for smaller amounts. So they'll pay a higher interest rate, but only on up to £2,000 or £5,000. Whereas um, with Goldman Sachs, the, it, I think you can pay in a quarter of a million pounds and you still get that interest rate. Um, so that's a good option for someone who's willing to have an online-only account. Um, for someone who wants to get interest on smaller amounts, uh, there's an account, uh, Club Lloyd's account, which pays up to 2% on up to £5,000 in savings. So if you're, the Santander account has a £20,000 limit on it on what it'll pay um, interest on. So if you're at the lower end of that, then you can move into the Club Lloyds account um, and that will give you a much higher interest rate. One of the other things to flag is lots of people use the 123 account for the cashback that it offers. So it 
kind of um, splits up your bills into three different categories depending on what type of bill they are and you can earn up to £5 cash back a month for each of the categories. If you're using that feature of it and you're not using the, the interest rate, then you'd be better switching to what's called the Santander 123 Lite account. So rather than charging you £5 a month like the other Santander account does, this only charges you £1 a month, but it still pays that level of cash back on direct debit. So you can earn up to £15 a month um, cash back. So that works out as £14 a month after you take off that £1 charge, but you don't get any interest on savings. So that is only an option for people that were really making use of the cash back available from the 123 account, but didn't have savings in there that they were earning interest on. And so also in the savings market, we've had some news about the Lifetime ISA. So the exit uh, charge, if you take money out early, is changing. Is this good for investors or bad? Yeah, it's really good. And it's something that we had been talking about for a while. One of the big um, unfairnesses with the Lifetime ISA is that you can withdraw money to buy a first home or you can withdraw money for your retirement. But if you take money out for any other reason, then you pay an exit penalty. And so... Um, as I'm sure people will know, the lifetime ISO, the money you pay in, you get a 25% government bonus on that money that you pay in. So if you pay um, £4,000 in in a year, then the government will pay in an extra £1,000 on top of that. Now, the exit charge um, was intended to redeem the government's money, so to stop you just taking that bonus money out and, and going away with it and spending it. But what it actually effectively was was an additional tax on um, any withdrawals you made. So it meant that you not only lost the government bonus, but you also lost just over 6% um, extra in terms of a, an exit penalty. What the government has done now is reduced that exit charge. So it means that all they are doing is, is redeeming back the government bonus money that you would have been paid. And that's essentially to reflect the fact that people are having to dip into their savings now more than ever. Lots of people have been furloughed. They've seen their incomes here and they're having to raid their savings parts. And it was seen as very unfair that people were having to pay the government money in order to access their own cash at a time like this when um, they might have put that money away with the best of intentions for using it for retirement or for their first property, but now have run out of money elsewhere and need to use it. So it's really good news, um, but it is temporary. So it only applies this reduced exit charge or withdrawal charge going down from 20, 25% to 20% applies to any withdrawals made from the 6th of March uh, this year until the 5th of April next year. So it runs until the start of the next financial year, effectively. OK, so if you've done, um, you know, been using your, your lifetime ISA in the last sort of uh, month or so, then you can actually go and get retrospective go back and apply for um, a sort of partial refund then on on any exit penalty then yeah and that's an important point to make because obviously this is good for anyone who was thinking about taking money out and hasn't yet um, and now if they take money out from today for example then um, their lifetime ISA manager will should effectively just charge them that 20% exit fee so they won't be paying the higher charge. But if you've already taken money out, you need to go back to your um, the provider of your lifetime ISA um, and talk to them about getting the difference back. Um, so obviously that only applies if you made a withdrawal after the 6th of March. 
but you should go back to them and get that difference back and that will either that money will either be paid into your lifetime ISA if you still have one open or if you don't want to have if you don't have one open because you closed it because you withdrew all the money then um, it will go back directly to you so that's an important point is if you've already made that withdrawal you need to make sure you go back to your provider and ask for the difference in money and I think one thing that we'll all be watching is so this is a, a temporary um, change that ends in April next year and one thing that we'll be watching for is whether this kind of current temporary change gets extended and is made permanent for because ever since the lifetime ISA was launched everyone said one of the big drawbacks of the product is that you you get charged this exit penalty um, so it'll be interesting to see what the what the government does at the time and, and whether they choose to just extend this and make this part of new lifetime ISA rules. So a lot of investors really like thematic investing strategies so they like the idea investing in companies that play into a specific topic such as how the world is expected to develop in the next 10 or 20 years so sort of think of a sort of the shift to renewable energy it might be people in emerging markets becoming richer or or a theme like disruptive technology so for the podcast this week i've spoken to a couple of people who are approaching thematic investing from different angles so later on we'll hear from an investment expert about some of the broader themes but first we've got tom walker who's a fund manager at schroders who uses thematic investing principles as part of his approach on the schroder global cities real estate fund so many people invest in property funds would just pick a certain type such as ones that might own offices or residential housing but so tom you've actually taken a bit more of a thematic approach to investing in property through a strategy that's called global cities i was wondering if you could just sort of explain exactly what you look for yeah when we are looking to invest for our global cities strategy the strongest trend that we see in the world today is urbanization i mean it's been going on for centuries but I think the advent of the technological revolution, if you like, is really driving more and more people towards cities. So we see cities as the economic engine that will allow our investments, our real estate investments, to have a very resilient income stream, but then also, crucially, an income stream that will grow. And obviously, this in turn will lead to higher capital values. So we see the cities as economic engines that will underpin the investments that we are making as more and more people have to move to cities because it's where the opportunities are, it's where the jobs are. And we think that gives us great protection as investors. And so you're, you're investing in... Um, companies that are involved in real estate, but you're not actually physically investing in individual properties, are you? No, absolutely. So we are investing in listed real estate companies. So obviously in the news quite a bit through Brexit, through the COVID-19 crisis and through a number of crises before there have been very well publicized UK fund suspensions. Those funds are obviously offering daily liquidity, but then having to go out and physically buy and sell a building, which obviously takes a number of months. We are trading listed shares in the stock market in companies like um, Segro or Land Securities. And so for us, the liquidity and being able to offer investors daily liquidity is not an issue. And actually, if you think back about the history of REITs, they were invented to give people the same exposure to real estate that you would get from physically owning the asset, but giving it to people in a liquid format. And I think that's absolutely crucial to understand those differences today. Yeah. So I know that there's quite a lot of people like to put money into infrastructure funds because they trying to tap into this sort of trend that where cities are investing in in infrastructure stuff so I'm sort of thinking about airports and power generation projects but i presume that you're 
your focus on infrastructure activity as well, but perhaps coming at it from a from a different angle, sort of identifying cities where there'll be lots of economic activity which will be fueled by good infrastructure. Do you think that's a, a fair way to say that how you're approaching things? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really interesting question because I think there is definitely a comparison in sort of what you've just highlighted from an infrastructure fund and what we're doing. And actually, we think about many of the investments we have as being critical parts of the infrastructure of a city, such as a data center, such as a hospital, uh, or whatever it might be. So these are absolutely vital in ensuring that the city can run efficiently. One of the advantages we think that we have investing in things like data centers is that for a traditional infrastructure asset, you will have a very, very long income stream, maybe 20, 25 years growing at inflation. Now, that is obviously very interesting, but if we can have income streams that are growing above inflation, that are generated from all the demand as people move to these cities, then we think we can generate a higher total return. So, yes, we, we see a lot of the assets in our portfolio as being infrastructure-like, but we think that they have stronger earnings growth because they are not perhaps let to governments or whoever it might be for 20 or 30 years. So are you looking for up-and-coming cities or, or ones which are actually already full of people? Because I was thinking if, you, if you're investing in a, in a sort of a property business, that they would obviously want the rents from their tenants to be going up as much. But um, if there was loads of new developments, you know, increasing supply of property, that, that might not be good for them. So uh, just wondering how you come about it from how, how full or not full do you want a city to be when you start looking at it? Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's a fine line between a city that has no supply and therefore businesses can't expand versus a city that has lots of supply and you're never going to have, you're never going to be able to increase your element of rent because there's always lots of choice for investors. And one of the great examples we always give a sort of a city sprawling where there's no rental tension would be a city like Dubai, where there just seems to be no kind of, you know, planning regime. You can just build and build in comparison to perhaps to a city like Los Angeles, where they have very, very tight planning restrictions or San Francisco, where there is actually a physical limit each year on the amount of new development that can uh, come out of the ground each year. Markets like that, we generally gravitate towards. We want obviously the addition of supply so businesses can grow, but we absolutely do not want an infinite amount of supply so that there is never going to be any tension in the in the rental market. So for us, we are looking for a city that has a, a nice balance of both. But again, it's the, the city that is attracting the clusters of expertise, whether it's in entertainment in Los Angeles, example, perhaps tech in San Francisco, or medical research in Boston, maybe finance in London. We really want these cities that specialize and become clusters of expertise because that drives more people to that location. And there is also more innovation and more jobs created. We think innovation is one of the key things that any successful city needs to have. And that's why we pay a lot of attention to how good the universities are in a particular city. And so can you give me an example of um, perhaps a city that people might think is would tick all the boxes, but actually doesn't do it for you? Is, is there any sort of obvious candidates there? Yeah, I think New York is actually a very interesting one. I mean, New York is obviously a certainly can be regarded as anyone's top five when you try and list global cities. But actually, for us, going back to this point about um, sort of supply, when you look at something like the office market, it's what we term as a low barrier to entry market. It's actually quite easy to build more office space in that market. There's for anyone who's been to New York recently, there's been a very large new direct development of offices and residential uh, in an area of New York called Hudson Yards. 
And it's just that ability to turn on the supply tap, which means that there isn't much tension in the market. So when we look at our exposure to New York, it's not as high as you might think. It's maybe one or two percent of the fund versus a city like Los Angeles, which is sort of seven, eight percent of the fund, because we see the demand and supply imbalance very differently. Yeah. What's it, so in, in terms of the sort of companies you're investing in, are, are they sort of things like warehouse owners then rather than sort of traditional office block businesses? Yeah, very much so. I mean, we see the traditional real estate portfolio that comprises of offices and retail and then maybe a smattering of industrial or student housing as just being a complete anachronism. They, it really is not relevant anymore. We think that obviously the likes of Amazon and even COVID-19 is disrupting retail, as we've all known. We think that offices are in the process of being disrupted. So when we look at the subsector exposure in our portfolio, we are in healthcare, we are in data centers, we are in self-storage, we're in student accommodation. So we're in sectors and, and obviously industrial as well. We're in sectors that we think have very strong structural demand drivers. And that's absolutely crucial. So when we look at the performance of our portfolio through COVID-19 and we think of the impact that this will have on the fund, there's really nothing new that COVID-19 is doing that was not happening before. All COVID-19 is doing is acting as a catalyst. So maybe sort of the working from home trend, for instance, may have taken place slowly over the next five to 10 years. We've certainly been talking about it to our clients for the last two to three years, but now we may well see this trend really rapidly increase over the next two to three years. Yeah, yeah it's because I was just thinking about, obviously, the, the coronavirus, if, if people talk about working from home much more, does that, um, you know, does that create any new opportunities of, of things that you haven't had in the past? Um, I was thinking much, perhaps more on the sort of the telecoms infrastructure side. I presume you know, it would be the data as well, wouldn't it? So the ability to serve um, more people working from home, or does that not really play out into what you're after? No, it, it very much plays out what, into what we're after. And we've actually got almost 10% of our portfolio in data centers, which is really where the cloud lives. So we are effectively the landlord to the cloud. And, you know, just sort of over the last few weeks, and particularly in the last two weeks since my children have been back at school, it's been absolutely amazed me that I've been able to be on, you know, video conference calls with companies or people in the office. They're having live lessons, and I've got three children. So you can think of the, the bandwidth being used up in our house. And touch wood, it's all been running smoothly. And it's, it's fascinating that we actually have this infrastructure in the cities to be able to cope with such peak demand for all of these services that we now require as we are stuck at home. So again, this kind of mission critical element of some of the stuff we own is very interesting. And we think that demand is only going to increase for all their com all companies and uh, streaming devices, et cetera, to have space in the data centers. Um, I think yeah. one of the interesting things from one of the conversations we've had recently with one of the data center companies was before COVID-19, a company might have the ability for five to 10% of employees to work from home. And we think that over COVID-19, when this is passed, we think that companies are gonna probably insist on having 100% of their employees able to work from home. So you can just think of that different demand that that will have for data centers. Yeah, I mean, so of the companies that you're investing in, are they, are they actually building their own data centers or are they just buying them off other people? Just wondering how it works and if they were buying it, uh, is it that the prices of these these little buildings going up considerably because there's clear increased demand for them? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the prices for these things, I mean, it's been referred to as the new beachfront property because they are now more valuable than that, you know, lovely house with the great view of the beach, which is quite a nice analogy. But actually, the last thing we want to be doing is owning a company that's just buying these things because, you know, you're probably not going to find you're going to get a very good token return. There's a very sort of select group of very, very well-run companies that own, develop and manage these data centers. And they've got a very, very sort of strong sort of early mover advantage. So we very much like investing in the companies that have development pipelines that are building these things out. They are pre-let to what are termed hyperscale users like a Microsoft or a Facebook. And then some of them may be also sort of let to, uh, you know, enterprises, large businesses. So yeah, we, we very much want to be owning a company that has a development pipeline, building the capacity for all this future demand that's coming through. So just in terms of um, companies within your portfolio, how how many of them have been hit by coronavirus? Because I, I, so I appreciate you can't have everything in, invested in data centres. There must have been someone in your portfolio which is um, struggling given that economies are being hit around the world. Yeah, very much so. I mean, we do obviously have uh, a large element of our portfolio in subsectors which have very strong structural growth, but we have around 8% of our portfolio in subsectors which are certainly very challenged by COVID-19. So we have about 2% in hotels, we've got about 1.5% in student housing, and then we've got about 3 or 4% in retail. All of those subsectors are obviously seeing complete lockdown, almost complete loss of income, which is obviously very concerning for us. So what we have focused on is the balance sheet strength of those companies, because we have to make sure that these companies can survive an extended period of no income. And we're very confident that they can do that. So we feel that when this thing turns, those companies will start to perform for our portfolio. But yes, you know, we, we do have some exposure to subsectors very much impacted. So something like hotel and retail, obviously, is there an opportunity now to to be buying shares in sort of related property companies for those sectors a lot cheaper? But I don't know whether you, would you feel brave enough to to be wanting to buy in the weakness, or um, you, your money's better chasing it sort of much more um, stronger opportunities at the moment. Yeah, it's it's a very hard question to answer. We're certainly an investor that never thinks that we can time the market perfectly. So if you knew when COVID-19 was going to end, how long the lockdowns were going to last for, then you could be able to make a pretty, you know, probably make some pretty interesting investments. One thing I will say, though, is that if we did know the magic answer to when COVID-19 finishes, the hotels would probably be higher up our list than retail. Because as I mentioned before, Retail, before COVID-19 existed, retail was already structurally challenged. And we think that COVID-19 will only accelerate those changes, i.e. people buying more and more online. Whereas hotels, particularly those in the cities, will always see that consistent level of demand from both business and then tourism as well. So, you know, again, we'd be looking at subsectors which we believe in over the longer term, as opposed to some subsectors like retail, which we think will be very, very challenged for an extended, if not permanent, amount of time. Brilliant. Tom, thank you ever so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's been excellent talking to you. No problem. Thanks for having me. So hopefully everyone enjoyed that interview. I thought it was quite interesting, particularly what he was talking about with, with data centres being part of real estate and property. Yeah, I think, you know, that definitely seems like a good place to do some more research, um, particularly as sort of property investing could be quite a tough place in the coming months. If more people are working from home on a permanent basis, you would have sort of assumed 
there would be reduced demand for certain types of commercial property. And so part of this kind of bigger look at thematic investing, Dan also caught up with Peter Askew, who's chief executive of an asset manager called T Bailey, to talk about post-corona world and um, what the impact might be on some of the big themes as well. So now let's listen to that interview. Thanks ever so much, Peter, for joining us today. Um, we want to talk about thematic investing because a, a lot of investors are sort of drawn to things like water, an aging population, robotics, digital economy. But I just want to sort of tap your brains, really, to think, do you think the coronavirus crisis is actually making any of these themes redundant or they're still very much in play for people to sort of perhaps pursue to put their money into? Yeah, I think, I think if anything, Dan, the, the coronavirus uh, situation has really accentuated um, a couple of themes. And I say a couple of themes in the broadest sense, so they may incorporate themes within them um so i think one sustainability which already had a lot of impetus going into this will gain further impetus uh if you think about um the lack of pollution well not a lack of pollution reduced pollution that's occurring right now in in pretty much every country um you know that's not lost on people i think well um, working practices will change uh, drastically for the better, um, but you know the way we operate going forward. This has been a great uh, testing ground, and that will that will change uh, the way that we operate. I think um, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, but but do you not think that um, there's some obvious winners from the current situation? But actually, all that sort of good news is already in the price, and I think. One of the dangers with, with thematic investing is that people are they identify themes, you know, and, and rightfully so. But it, it's it, the, perhaps people are buying them too late. They should be buying them before, you know, the whole world is gets onto it. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, valuations a separate issue, isn't it? But you know, Microsoft, Amazon are not going, are companies that aren't going to go away. Um, you might question something like an Apple, um, where um, you know, really, is that, a, is that a tech company or is that a consumer goods company? Um, but going back to your other themes, like the ageing population, you know, that hasn't changed. Sadly, um, the coronavirus may have hit the elder, elderly population more than other generations, although it seems to be also indiscriminate. Um, but as a, as a percentage of the population, uh, it, it's, it's unfairly hit the elderly population. But, you know, we're all getting older, and the demographics say that you know the aging population is something that we're going to need to think about going forward. So even things like care homes, um, keeping people in, in better health, all saves money. Um, the move to uh, generic medication, to uh, bespoke medication, is, is a trend that's not going away. I.e. A bit like when you take your car in for a service, they plug it into a diagnostic testing. Effectively, what will happen eventually is, you know, you will you'll plug in your DNA and they'll tell you what's wrong and they'll give you a drug that's specific to you, not a generic drug. So that is not going away. Um, and things like, you, you mentioned water, um, you know, that is, people say it's the new oil, um, it's a scarce 
commodity um, and looking after it, making you have making sure you have secure water supply, is going to be something that's that, uh, again, it's not going to go away over time. What you pay for these businesses, yes, it's difficult <clears throat> when when things have gone up a long way in a short space of time. You know, if you feel like you're following um, uh, something up, um, and, and you you may pay for it going going forward, but you know. The best investing is always done incrementally um, until you average in um, and don't be too clever about it. But the companies that are in the right space are going to be around for quite a while. Yeah. So what I mean, in terms of um, I know you you look at thematic investing quite a lot. What what would you say are the strongest themes that perhaps um, investors should be should be looking to consider if they haven't already got exposure in their portfolios yeah i mean just going back to why thematic investing is makes sense so you know that the asset management template was to look at things geographically um let's say for equities um, so by asset class and then geographically um and then you break it down let's say in bonds you break it down by investment grade bonds and are your bonds when actually the real fertile area in bonds is actually in the crossover area. But, you know, it's what product products are being driven by the asset managers, not necessarily by the client um, in the retail space. So if you're an institutional investor, you kind of got to go down the big route. The retail investor, you don't need to do that. So logically, uh, right, rather than trying to work out what the GDP of the US or the or UK is, and then saying, well, I allocate X to one or the other. Well, then what tends to happen is because emerging markets tend to have higher growth rates, people just put money into emerging markets. And and that's another label that's flawed as well. But let's go back to uh, thematic investing. So if, you, if your geographical breakdown is a byproduct of investing thematically, then you're probably going to be in the best themes and, and your allocation to the US will probably be reasonable, but not necessarily driven by market capitalization. And therefore, you want to be exposed to uh, the digital economy. That's certainly the way that economies are going to um, be focused on going forward. And then Asian population, I think nutrition is going to be really important. Um, sourcing of food, clearly plant-based um food is is another trend that is not going to reverse and infrastructure is also going to be important um you know building of roads toll roads um going forward and you know you look at someone like the us as a country that's underinvested in infrastructure for a number of years uh, and we'll have to do something about that going forward you know some of these are very long-term themes to be sort of playing out um therefore do you think this thematic investing is more suited to to a long-term investor rather than someone that simply wants to make um you know 10 20 percent in a couple of months yeah well good luck to that you want to make plenty of, <laughs> there's plenty of people that try and make 10 to 20 percent in a couple of months and and you know for for a bit of i say fun money is the wrong word but for a small portion of your wealth you might want to do that and it it gives you an interest and and gives you a bit of focus but i think if you're investing in any period, you always got to look at, I think, a long, long term. What are the key long term drivers of returns? And it will be those themes. Um, 
So rather than saying, you know, is the US going to grow 2%, 1%, 2.5% next year, or maybe more, you know, uh, to make up for 2020, you know, long-term drivers um, and the themes that we're talking about, you're probably going to get up towards double digits on a recurring basis. And that's a powerful story. Um, and I think you've got to look at it long term. It, it's really difficult to to make uh, 10 to 20 percent over a couple of months, apart from every now and then. And people will tell you, always tell you their success stories, um, not, not the ones that went horribly wrong. Yeah. So I think just just for our listeners, just to sort of clarify, you know, it, it is in, it's kind of impossible to say what you're going to make to make predictions about stuff. But, you know, investing is is a long-term game, really. And um, you know, the idea of you expect to make 10%, 20% or something every year, you, you, you know, as the coronavirus crisis has just shown us, you just can't make those predictions, really. No. There's always going to be a left-field event, isn't there, it's every 10 years, probably, and, and some hiccups in, in between, uh, as we've seen. You know, temper tan- sorry, the, the taper tantrum seems to be a, a, a thing of the of uh, way back but it was only a few years ago um but you know the, the great financial crisis of 089 you know it's basically 10 years and a bit now you've got coronavirus um there could be another one in 10 years time and then and a few bumps in the road on the way but if you focus on those key drivers you are likely to be in a in a better place in the long run for um for returns um, against the great, you know, the great destroyer of returns, which is inflation, um, over over a period of time. So yeah, longer term investing is is the way to really accrue wealth. Um, yeah. Trade trading is 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 fraught with danger and usually costs you money. Well, Peter, thank you ever so much. That is, um, thank you for joining us today. That's been really helpful. Great to talk to you. Pleasure, my pleasure, Dan. Thanks very much for for your time. Thanks a lot for listening this week. If there's anything you want us to cover or any questions that you have, then do email them to podcast at ajbell.co.uk. And please leave a review of us wherever you listen to your podcast as it helps other people to find us. And we'll see you next week. Thanks. This week, we've discussed lifetime ISAs. A lifetime ISA isn't for everyone. If you withdraw money before age 60, other than to purchase your first home, you'll pay a government withdrawal charge of 20% or 25% from 6th of April 2021. This may mean that you get back less from your LISA than you paid in. Also, if you choose to save into a lifetime ISA instead of enrolling in or contributing to your workplace pension scheme, you'll miss out on the benefit of any of your employer's contributions to that scheme, and your current and future entitlement to means-tested benefits might be affected. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.